we're not here for mass production. We want to do a good product that people will pay us that little bit more for so that we don't have to take as much out of the water, which even though what we're doing now is highly sustainable, we, I'd like it to be even more. I keep telling people that I'm basically lazy. I just want to catch less fish and get more money. But good story, but that's not it. That, that really is that we want to produce the best there is. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. In Tasmania, commercial fishing is more than just an important part of the state's economy. As well as a source of food and income for many coastal communities, for many, it is an intergenerational part of their family history. Stuart Ritchie has been fishing the Bass Strait waters for over 35 years, and his father, Dick, fished for 35 years before. His son, John, now manages the fishing operations to continue the family heritage. Yeah, my name's Stuart Ritchie. I'm the managing director of Ritchie Fishing, which is a family-owned business operating out of Devonport, Tasmania, and covering probably most of Southeast Australia. I'm told I first went to sea when I was six weeks old, but I don't can't actually give you much of a description about that. Um, that was when my father had a little trawler operating out of Naruma in New South Wales, and uh, he also had the supply run out to the Montague Island Lighthouse. So I'm told that at six weeks old, I had my first run out to sea. But from a, about six years onwards, I can remember always messing about with nets um, and uh, built my own nets. And then I, um, I used to fish in the Gippsland Lakes when I was very young and uh, eventually got a, lakes, a license to actually fish in the lakes. And then when we moved to Tasmania, I... From about 10 years on, I always had my own dinghies and my own nets and fishing gear to play around with. World War II saw many young Australian men deployed in jobs far from their way of life and homes. The family patriarch, Dick Ritchie, working in the Australian Navy in New Guinea during the Second World War, resulted in transforming a rural farm boy into a master mariner and set him on a career on the high seas. My father was in New Guinea before the war working for an oil company and uh, he was also, during the war, he was on uh, small ships in New Guinea. And for some reason, after the war, he decided he wanted to be a fisherman. So he went to the uh, fisheries department in Sydney and, and said he wanted to be a fisherman. And they told him that, well, you're going to go broke, but we've also been told that any... Um, any war service veterans, we've got to give you a license if you apply. So here's your license, but don't blame us when you go broke. So from then on, his mission in life was to prove this public servant in Sydney wrong, and I think he was probably highly, highly successful at that. So he started trawling at um, Navruma, New South Wales, learned how to, to fish there, and then moved down to Lakes Entrance in the Oh, early 50s, 1952, 53, when Lakes Entrance was just starting to, to build up as a Danny Sane port. And he was uh, very successful fishing. And then um, in about 1956, he, he bought an aeroplane, which he'd always wanted. He'd always wanted to fly. He joined the Air Force, but couldn't fly because he was colourblind. And I suppose that's one of the first things I remember. My father giving me this book when I was six years old, a book full of circles and dots and and uh, asking me what all the circles and dots meant. Little did I know it was the Ishihara book, which is what they use for, for colour blindness. I have no colour blindness, so I could uh, 
clearly see what was there. I'd tell my father, he memorised the page, went and did his uh, colour blindness test for his flyer's pilot's licence and passed with flying colours and went flying in his little old tiger moth and found you could see all these fish from the air. And that was the start of uh, of uh, our aerial fish spotting. And from there, um, that was in Lake Entrance. And then he toddled off down to Tasmania in his tiger moth and found that this was really the home of Australian salmon. And um, so the business just grew from there. And we then, as uh, my two older brothers and I got older, we became part of the business, um, expanded into – um, other fisheries as well as Australian salmon into scallops and, uh, and shark and started doing a lot of charter work. And then in the early 2000s, I brought out the rest of the family and my wife and I owned the business and my eldest son uh, runs the, the boating and fishing side of it and we've just um, gone from there. The Eastern Bass Strait is a unique stretch of water. It's fed by the warm East Australian current and the cold Lewin current, which joins the Roaring Forties, coming from the west of Tasmania. Because of the environmental diversity in the Eastern Bass Strait, there are many different kinds of seafood in abundance. For a multi-species fishing company like Ritchie Fishing, the diversity of both environment, weather and target catch demands that they have a unique combination of marine, weather forecasting and fishing skills. Well, Devonport's the gateway to Tasmania, um, where the, uh, the ferries come into Devonport daily. For us, uh, we chose it as home base many, many years ago because uh, it has good port facilities. The fishing grounds are about equally distant either way out of uh, Devonport. And um, for us, I suppose it's a little interesting that we actually have to have good airport facilities because we use our own aircraft for fish spotting. So uh, that was another another plus for Devonport. Tasmania is a special place anyway, and, and Bass Strait is a special place. It can be especially awful at times in bad weather, but it's a, it is a special place. Flinders Island, of course, is in the middle of the Roaring Forties, uh, where we get particularly things, our fishing is in winter, and we get a lot of gales coming through there, so it's a pretty exciting place to work, and I, I think that's had a bit to do with narrowing down the number of boats that that are actually working in that it is big boat country, and um, so we're working in the in the pristine waters of Bass Strait. Really, we've got the measured to have the cleanest air in the world, and I think our, probably our water is much the same. Um, we're working offshore that um, that the scallop beds in eastern Bass Strait run down the eastern side of Flinders Island and, and up towards the Victorian coast. We're working in depths from the shallowest would be 25 metres out to about 60 metres. And um, all that eastern Bass Strait, of course, is fed by the East Australian Current, which is quite a rich current. And uh, that's why we get such a, a good growth rate and uh, these really lovely, healthy, creamy, creamy scallops. The habitat, weather and water conditions of the eastern Bass Strait produces a unique scallop. The scallops which live there need to be strong and healthy, swimming and eating voraciously just to survive. Traditional dredging causes the scallops to stress and drown, often with a gut full of mud. 
The Ritchies have developed a form of scallop fishing which is both more environmentally suitable and produces a far superior quality eating scallop. Whilst this format reduces the harvest by over 50%, the quality of the Ritchie's catch is exponentially better in keeping the scallops live and in best condition. Uh, scallops, we, we started off in the boom times in Lakes Entrance when it first started there in the, um, uh, the late 60s, early 70s. And, uh, and again, it was massively overfished. There was 120 boats all competing there. Um, after that, we, when we were in Tasmania, we were in the Tasmanian scallop fishery, and then there was a Commonwealth scallop fishery in the Victorian one. We've got licences and quota for all of those, but in that time, we've seen the uh, the fleet shrink from uh, 120 down to about eight boats. There's eight dedicated boats now who are who are set up for it, have really good handling equipment, uh, are able to chill the catch the minute it comes on board, and and can work directly to their processor so that we're landing the perfect product. We can control the cold chain from the second the fish hit the boat until they're processed and going out to the consumer. So things have changed hugely from a boom and bust fishery to one that is now very well managed and with very few participants in it. And um, we've had to buy up quota from all these 120 boats that have gone, the ones, the boats that have stayed have continually kept up buying quota and licences so that the, um, um, the, you know, the fishery is now probably one of the most sustainable ones around. We've gone from being the most unsustainable to one of the best ones. We do a lot for the domestic market. We're, um, we're going into Sydney now. We have been exporting in the past. We exported to Thailand for quite a while for reprocessing when uh, we couldn't get enough labour here to process. Um, we're doing some into Vietnam, but uh, our preference is to do as much as we can within Australia, within the domestic market. The Australian salmon, or Oripus trutta, is a streamlined fish with a long and slender body. That is where the similarity to the Atlantic salmon ends. Australian salmon are an underutilised migratory species more closely related to the herring and are not especially well regarded by chefs or consumers. As supply of great quality, local, sustainable wild fish becomes more scarce, perhaps the time is nigh for the Australian salmon to find its place as a tasty, nutritious and great value seafood for humans rather than lobsters. Australian salmon is a, a native native to Australia, uh, as the name suggests, it's actually a perch and no relation whatsoever to the Atlantic salmon that are farmed and probably um, a lot stronger taste than, and, and not such a good table fish as Atlantic salmon. Uh, we started catching it in 1956. They, they're uh, what's known as pelagic fish. They uh, are along the, um, pretty much along the shoreline and uh, we spot them from the air and at times we might stalk a patch of fish for weeks and weeks on end before we we go and catch it in that when we catch it if we can just take that entire school of fish uh, out of existence without losing any and this all sounds all back to front but if we can do that next year in around about the same time and in the same place, there'll be the school come back there again. And 
that's why we've been so successful. We're the only ones who do it to this scale in Tasmania. We basically managed it ourselves, um, and we're just so careful about what we do. We don't want any scared fish, ones that have been in the net and escaped, because they will then um, just spook everything else in the area. So we're um, we're very conservative in what we do. We only operate in really good weather conditions, so we know we're not going to have a mess up. And then our aim is to take the entire patch, and then. We'll come back next year and do the same thing again. And we've been doing this for for uh, what seventy, nearly seventy years. So we're obviously doing something right. And capture method is beach seining, where you're actually hauling most of the net up onto a beach, and the uh, the salmon go into a what you call a big big cot end or a big bag in the middle of the net. That's disconnected uh, out in deeper water and then just towed further out to sea so we can get alongside the, the mothership and uh, the, the bigger boat. And then they are um, railed aboard. They're still alive, totally alive, and they come aboard in a big dip net and go straight into refrigerated seawater that's at zero degrees. And that, that gives them an instant chill and makes them bring up anything that's in their stomach and excess blood all comes out of them then. So we, we start that that chilling the, the second they come on the boat. Then we change the water a couple of times with more um, chilled seawater and then we just hold them, hold them at zero degrees. So they're not frozen solid, but they're just chilled and they've already had the blood taken out of them and um, that then gives us sort of up to, a, up to eight days to do something with them. We like to to do it within three or four days to keep them super fresh and uh, just very careful of the way we handle them and the boats we have have been designed and built around handling large quantities of Australian salmon. Well, the very sad thing about this, we actually get more money selling them for rock lobster bait than we than we do for human consumption, <laughs> which is really sad. We did have uh, some markets line up in China, but of course the way things are that that's all uh, gone by the wayside. But Australian salmon is one of the, the fisheries or the fish that I think, and I know John, you've identified as a great future um, as an underutilised species where properly handled, they are very palatable. They smoke beautifully. And I think that over time, we're going to see more and more of these on the menu. Another of the seasonal species caught by the Richies is the gould or arrowed squid. More often found crumbed in a takeaway box than on a plate in a fine dining restaurant, this is another species which has a great scope in more sophisticated markets. It is another one of the underutilised ones. We we recognised in, in 1998 that there was probably people squid fishing, but we'd, we'd heard of uh, that the Japanese had invented some better gear. So um, at that time I went to Japan, it took a, took a week before they'd They'd show there's a group of us went a week before they'd actually show us the the really good gear, which was fully computerized, interfaced with the other electronics on the boat, and really um, caught the fish itself. Worked out what depth it was catching fish at, um, followed the bottom contours. Uh, it, it allowed for the role of the boat. So. Um, we were really impressed with that, and it really didn't come down to price. It came down to whether the manufacturer actually liked you or not. And on the 
on the last day I was there, just before I was to fly out, I was called into the, the president's office and through an interpreter told that, yes, the president's like you and um, he will, will sell you a set of gear and you need to know that this is the first time this equipment has ever been allowed outside of Japan. So that that, that was a bit of a pat on the back. When we got home, we found out what the bill was going to be, but it was, uh, it was worth every penny of it. And again, when we did that, we wanted to move away from the way squid fishing had been, where the boats would go out at night, they'd land them on the deck during the night and then race in next morning and unload, and the quality just wasn't there. If we were going to do it, we wanted to do it properly, so we then started freezing on board so that, uh, again, we could have the have the, the chilling process starting within five minutes of the squid landing on the boat. And when we did unload... It was a frozen product that was absolutely perfect. So that's where we've gone with a lot of our stuff. We're looking for perfection all the time. And the only way to get real perfection is to be able to freeze it very quickly on board. Or if you can't freeze it quickly on board, to maintain that cold chain from the minute it hits the deck, maintain the cold chain right through while it's on the boat, while it's being unloaded, while it's being transported, so that it's in perfect condition when it comes to processing time. As with the use of any natural resource, the community sets a high bar, especially for the behaviour of commercial fishers. The shared use of fisheries in terms of environmental, social and economic outcomes is a delicate balancing act. The responsibility for maintaining the conditions of our waters and the health of the fish stocks often means that fishers need to be versatile and flexible in their activities. We have our set things that we do at different times of the year. So at the moment, um, July through to November, we'll be, uh, we'll be scalloping. After that, it will either be squid or salmon. And then interspersed with that is we do um, charter work for not, not people going out to catch a handful of fish, but scientific charter work for the likes of the Institute of Marine Antarctic Studies for CSIRO and people like that. So um, certainly our crew and John, my son, love doing that because it's a it's different than fishing. But I always look at it as um, we're also passing on our knowledge as well as learning from the scientists on board, particularly when we're doing uh, scallop surveys and, and egg production surveys, that we're passing on the anecdotal knowledge that we've picked up while we're talking with the scientists who are on there doing it. And between the anecdotal evidence from the industry and the scientists um, linking it together, we've, we're getting a greater understanding, firstly, of each other, but secondly, of uh, the industries that we operate in. We're just learning from them all the time. The pressures of operating a family business are many and varied. Within the seafood industry, many families have exited as the luxuries of middle class take hold of what is a dangerous and varied job, with many sons and daughters choosing a comfortable life in law or technology over the windswept, freezing conditions of fishing. The Ritchie family are an exception, driven by innovation and never-ending pursuit for excellence. The next generation of Ritchie fishermen have taken to building the family business in a sustainable, profitable way. Family business like ours, we're on the cusp. Are, are we big enough or are we going to get taken over or are we just a nice size where we can remain a family business and concentrate purely on getting a really good product? I hope that 
that we're the latter, where we're, we're big enough to, um, to survive and continue doing what we're doing, um, continually trying to be at the forefront of what we do and continually just produce that really good product that um, we're not here for mass production. We want to do a good product that people will pay us that little bit more for so that we don't have to take as much out of the water which even though what we're doing now is highly sustainable, we, I like it to be even more. I keep telling people that I'm basically lazy. I just want to catch less fish and get more money. But it, and, and Good story, but that's not it. That, that really is that we want to produce the best there is. All of our fisheries are in a, in a really – everything we're in is in a really good shape. Australian fisheries in general are in very good shape compared to the rest of the world. So the, the future is bright. We're not going to be – we're never going to be a huge fishing nation, but we've got uh, good sustainable fisheries such as our rock lobster, abalone, scallops and so on. But we've also got some great opportunities with our Australian salmon, with sardines, pilchards, all the underutilised species. I think they're the exciting ones to come yet um, because there's so much room for development there. Stuart Ritchie is a true leader in the Australian seafood industry. With a commitment not only to his family business and the fisheries they are directly involved in, he has long participated in setting the agenda for the industry. The, the industry's been my life. Uh, I still enjoy it. I don't enjoy going to see that much anymore. I've still got all my skipper's tickets and everything else. But um, when you get to my age, you start thinking, well, if, if I'm steaming 14, 16 hours to a fishing ground, that's 14 or 16 hours I just wasted. I love all the fishing bit, but I, I don't like the time I waste getting there and back. So I'm more involved in on the management side of things now. I do all the marketing. I'm involved on a couple of management advisory committees. I do a few other things with the government. So, um, but I still get a, a real buzz just going down the wharf and talking to fishermen. It, it's always been my life and I enjoy it. And I'm now in a position with some of the other things I do where um, I'm accepted by someone in the industry who's been there, done that. Um, and even though some people might like me, they sort of, at least I've got the credibility because I have been there and done it. As a long-time fisher and a keen steward of the seafood industry, Stu Ritchie is setting the industry on a great course for a sustainable and secure future. This is Fishtales, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtales Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtalespodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.